Gestational diabetes is a risk factor for adverse perinatal outcomes. We all get that. Currently, the ACOG does recommend early screening for GDM for women who are, quote, at risk. However, other experts disagree with this approach. On October the 6th, 2022, we actually released a podcast titled Early GDM Screening, Evidence-Based. So you can go back to October the 6th, 2022 and listen to that message. In that episode, we covered the controversy regarding early GDM screening. In other words, in pregnancies under 24 weeks. Now, we've been following this story and this debate for over two years now. We first released an episode investigating the utility of early screening for GDM back on May the 7th, 2021, with an episode called Early GDM Screening. Does it matter? The controversy surrounds maternal and neonatal outcomes. Well, does it actually improve with early screening? Well, we now have more data to answer that question. Yep. Looks like we were vindicated in our prior message covering this. In this episode, we're going to summarize key findings from a recent June 2023 publication in the New England Journal of Medicine. That publication is titled, Treatment of Gestational Diabetes Mellitus Diagnosed Early in Pregnancy. The lead author of that publication is Simons. So, should we be doing early screening for GDM? We're going to get into the data in this episode. Medicine moves real fast. We're here to help us all keep up the pace. This is Clinical Pearls. Well, once again, I'm not sure if you can hear the weird little bird chirpings outside, but I am not in the podcast studio. I'm actually recording this on Sunday. And if you saw, if you follow us on our Facebook page, uh, you know, we live in Texas. Uh, we used to live in Dallas. Now we live in College Station, which is where Texas A&M University is. That's the, the health science centers where we're affiliated with. But anyway, we took a little weekend getaway back to Dallas. And so I'm literally outside of a hotel room. Uh, it's really nice in the morning because it's not yet the 200 degrees that it usually gets to at about 3 p.m. in Texas. So I'm like, hey, you know what? Everyone's asleep. Uh, I'm going to get to work. I know it's weird. I know it's pathological. I should probably just like watch TV or something. But then I watch TV and I feel guilty that I'm not working or recording something. I, I get it. I'm working through it. It's issues. But this actually makes it, it's fun for me. This is relaxing to me. I like doing this. I like connecting with our podcast family. Uh, and so while they're asleep, hey, I, I get to work. So anyway, if you hear weird ambient sounds, it is what it is. Uh, I, I've got to stop doing these things on the road because it really drives my team crazy. But um, yeah, hell, such is life. podcast family. It's interesting how stuff works out, isn't it? I mean, we have done several episodes on gestational diabetes, both with early screening, uh, and then we've covered after 28 weeks screening, because there's so much stuff done out there in practice. But is it really evidence-based, right? I mean, why do we do early screening? Think about it. Ideally, we do early screening, not just to say, oh, we found it early. But the ultimate goal, of course, is to implement some kind of treatment plan that would improve maternal or neonatal outcomes. That's really what it's about. Otherwise, checking early really doesn't do anything. But there's a lot of issues here with checking outside of the 24 to 28 week standard window. And that's at all of the standardized tests, whether it's Carpenter-Cowson or the National Diabetic Data Group Protocol, 
whether it's the two-step protocol or the one-step, they're all geared to a certain level of human placental lactogen. They're all geared to a certain response of the body at that gestational age, right? Late second trimester, beginning of the third trimester, 24 to 28 weeks. But what does it mean when you screen somebody at 12 weeks? What's the normal cutoff value there? And the same thing with screening somebody at 35 weeks who presents late to care. What's the normal value there? We don't know that. Remember, we covered early screening in a previous episode that we talked about in the intro, but we also covered the controversy with screening late after 28 weeks because nobody knows what a normal value is there either. Now, this is super interesting. Look how stuff works out. It had to be not more than a week ago that I received a message from someone in Australia, one of our podcast family members um, who's a, an OBGYN practitioner, okay, and said, hey, where's the data on, on, on checking for diabetes outside of the 24 to 28 window? And did I miss that in a previous episode? So I said, Steve, of course, we've covered that. Uh, here are the links. Uh, and, and that's exactly right. You, the question that you asked is the question everybody has is where's the guidance? Where's the guideline? What's the, the normal values when you screen early or screen late? Is, the, is it the same as when you screen between 24 and 28? And of course, nobody knows. But now we've got new data specifically regarding early diabetic screening in pregnancy because man i'm telling you right our, our podcast tagline is medicine moves fast and now we've got more data so we're going to start back in uh, 2020 with an rct that looked at early screening and early implementation of of treatment and whether that made a difference or not because that's the historical background and now jump forward three years to now to 2023 and that first finding, those first results from 2020 are again vindicated because, well, I don't want to give it away, but it, it, they found the exact same thing. All right. So that's where we're going with this. Uh, is there any value? Does it really improve maternal and neonatal outcomes when you screen under 24 weeks like the college says we do? Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Before I get into the new data, I mentioned the college, right? So let me be very clear because I'm very ACOG friendly. I, I want to stick to the rules. I want to stick to the guidelines. And just to be clear, I am not going against the ACOG current recommendations, which we're about to state and explain, all right? I support my college, but it's okay to question, right? That's how the scientific process works. And the way that the college changes guidance is by the accumulation of data. So I want to be very clear. I am 100% uh, in agreement with what the college states. However, we now realize that there are limitations and new data that should question that original recommendation of early screening in women who are overweight or obese and have additional factors. We're going to explain those in just a minute. So I'll be very clear. I'm not saying the college is wrong. I don't want to get into that kind of heat. All right. So I'm not saying that. I'm just saying medicine moves fast. And that's how the college eventually does adopt uh, and becomes flexible to these new uh, recommendations, these new guidelines, and to these new studies. Remember, that's the beauty of what we do, guys, right? Medicine is alive. It's always changing. It's always adapting and growing, which makes it a lot of fun. The ACOG has endorsed early screening for GDM in those who are at risk of having the condition. And they've done so since 2018 when that information was released in Practice Bulletin 190, okay, 190. The college states, quote, early pregnancy screening for undiagnosed type 2 diabetes, preferentially at the initiation of prenatal care, is suggested in overweight and obese women with additional diabetic risk factors, including those with a prior history of GDM, 
end quote. All right, we get that. So, hey, you get screened early. Uh, potentially, we're going to improve outcomes, right? Well, that's the potentially part. We're going to get into that in just a minute. But what are those additional risk factors in addition to being overweight and obese? Well, ACOG defines them as this. Patients with physical inactivity. Let me stop there for a minute. Uh, look, man, I'm not the most active person either. I get that. I feel I kind of feel like that's picking on people. But I, I can pretty much tell you most of my patients are physically inactive. So that's already a win. Uh, all right, so physical inactivity. Second is a first-degree relative with diabetes. Next comes a high-risk race or ethnicity, either African-American, Latino, Native American, or Asian-American or Pacific Islander. Uh, those who've had a previous uh, birth of a child weighing 4,000 grams, right? That's four kilos. Those with a previous history of gestational diabetes, those who have hypertension, those with high-density lipoprotein cholesterol or HDLs that are less than 35 or a triglyceride level greater than 250. Now, we don't do that screen in pregnancy. Ideally, that's somebody who already has a history of that, but that's an additional risk factor for early screening for GDM. Uh, next is a history of PCOS because of the insulin resistance issue. Uh, ACOG also says that another risk factor for early screening are those with a hemoglobin A1C that is showing signs of insulin impairment, right? Insulin resistance. And that's a hemoglobin A1C greater than or equal to 5.7. Obviously, a, a hemoglobin A1C of greater than 6.5 is concerning for diabetes itself. But for those with impaired glucose tolerance at a hemoglobin A1C of 5.7 or above, those should have early screening according to the college. Other conditions are those with physical signs of insulin resistance like acanthosis nigricans or a certain BMI, which is if you're over 40 with your BMI, that's a risk factor. And the last one is any history of cardiovascular disease. So those are all of the additional risk factors in addition to being overweight or obese that, that the college states remember those. And if a patient has one of those things, then consider screening them early for diabetes, all right? But again, this is interesting because most of the data shows that while we can identify gestational diabetes early, here it is, guys, here's a spoiler, it really doesn't seem to have any meaningful change to maternal or neonatal outcomes, except we just stress patients out a little bit earlier. That's super disappointing. All right. Now you can go back to that October 6, 2022 episode because we covered some of that data in that. But as a highlight, just to, to, to catch us up to speed, we're going to go over that May 2020 publication. That's an RCT that looked at this before we get into this new 2023 publication. Okay. All right, podcast family, when we come back, we're going to answer the question whether or not early screening does help by looking at the RCT from May of 2020, okay? The lead author of that publication was Harper, and this was published in the American Journal of OBGYN. This RCT was called the EGO trial. EGO, like let go my EGO? Yeah, no joke. Not because it's a waffle, but because it has to do with early gestational diabetes screening, okay? E-G-G-O, the EGO trial from 2020. Let's cover that when we come back. 
Okay, the Harper May 2020 publication. This was an RCT, okay? And I'll put the link to this in our references, of course. This was a randomized controlled trial comparing early gestational diabetes screening done between 14 and 20 weeks to routine screening done, of course, between 24 and 28 weeks. This was done in obese women who had a BMI defined as greater than or equal to 30, okay? Now, this took place at two tertiary care centers here in the U.S., Screening was performed using a 50-gram, one-hour glucose challenge test, followed by the 100-gram, three-hour glucose tolerance test. Now, remember, this was the two-step protocol, right? You do the one-hour, and then you do the three-hour if you need it. And they use the Carpenter-Kausten criteria. So remember, the Carpenter-Kausten criteria was is the one that uses a, a lowered value than the National Diabetic Data Group. Now, in general, most use a Carpenter-Kausten criteria of 130 if they fail the 50-gram one-hour as opposed to the 140 cutoff from the National Diabetic Data Group. But these authors did do a little something. They kind of hedged their bet a little bit because it kind of went in the middle, all right? So they used a cutoff value for the one hour of 135, okay? But nonetheless, they used the lower value, which obviously has more sensitivity because you lower the bar. Uh, and so that's something to keep in mind, all right? Now, this is important because remember, in this May 2020, the Harper study, the EGO trial, they used the two-step protocol using a lower cutoff than the National Diabetic Data Group recommends, right? So they use not the 140, but the 135, similar to carpenter Calcin that uses the 130 cutoff for the one hour. Why am I getting into all that? Well, it's important to remember this because this 2020 study used the two-step protocol. And this is really smart because what was just published last month in June 2023 is the one-step protocol, the 75-gram oral challenge test, so that nobody says, hey, look, you picked on early screening, but you did the two-step. If you did the one-step, then it really would have mattered because it only matters if you do that one. So this is cool because in this May 2020 publication, remember, it's a two-step protocol with, with lowered uh, bars based on carpenter kausen ish criteria, whereas the one that we're going to see in the 2023 publication uses a one-step protocol, and there's only one uh, reference range for that, all right? So there's no... There's no discrepancy for that. In the two-step, it's either carpenter kausen or National Diabetic Data Group. But in the two-step, uh, I'm sorry, in the one-step protocol, there's just one set of reference values. And I'll give you that in just a minute, but everybody knows that anyway. So, and I like this. Now we've got both bases covered. We've got early screening based on the two-step protocol in 2020. And now in June, 2023, we have early screening with the one-step 75-gram challenge test. So nobody can say, well, maybe you had results differently if you did the other protocol. That's been checked, all right? So super, super interesting. And now we have two studies in time that balance each other out. So let's get into this 2020 first, and then we'll get into the more recent one from last month. All right, podcast families, remember, these are women who had obesity and also had another risk factor, and they had early screen. And if they passed that, then they were rescreened in the typical time between 24 and 28 weeks, okay? But those who failed early screen, obviously then uh, they went into some kind of treatment algorithm, all right? Now, here's the catch. Here's what happened. The primary outcome was a composite of macrosomia defined as greater than 4,000 grams, primary cesarean delivery, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, shoulder dystocia, neonatal hyperbilirubinemia, or neonatal hypoglycemia within 48 hours of birth, all right? 
a total of 962 women were randomized and outcomes were available for 922. That's pretty good persistence. In other words, they didn't lose half. They didn't lose 25%. They actually had an invaluable cohort of 922 out of 962. That's pretty good. Well, the short of it is, and here's the clinical pearl, early screening did not reduce the incidence of the primary outcome in any meaningful way. Yep, the p-value between those that had early screening and treatment compared to those who had routine screening and treatment was not statistically significant. The p-value was 0.07, above the 0.05 that's considered statistically meaningful. And the confidence interval actually crossed 1. It was 0.9 to 1.26, meaning always Remember, guys, as a quick little pearl on statistics, if a confidence interval crosses one, in general, it means that what you found is basically chance uh, and not clinically relevant. So the authors concluded, quote, Early screening for gestational diabetes in obese women did not reduce the composite perinatal outcome, end quote. Boo. All right. So so early screening was a bust. But this brings us now to our June 2023 publication. So let's cover that next. Hey family, before I get into the data, I really want to just say something super personal to all of our listeners. Um, I, I got to be honest, when I get a little message from you guys that, hey, thank you for what you do, you know, this is encouraging, or, or you're, you're my tr- commute buddy, or I listen to you when I'm running or jogging in the morning, uh, first of all, great for being physically active, go get them, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, it, it really does encourage me because... Uh, uh, you know, this, this takes a lot of time to do. Um, and like right now, my family's asleep and I'm knocking out a, a, an episode. Uh, so, and, and I got to be honest, it, sometimes when I, I have something out, I have got to get out and I go, man, no one's going to listen to it. I don't know. Should I even do it? It is an internal struggle, but I do love it. it I do love doing this. It, it does make me happy. So getting feedback like this from our podcast family members is super meaningful. Thank you for that. We've received messages from Maine, from Chicago, Steve from Australia. I can't tell you enough how much it really does brighten our day. So anyway, just thank you all for just being part of our community, for supporting this and for finding value in, in, in what we're trying to do here. Um, look, I've been a patient. My, my family's been a patient. And, and heaven forbid, if my daughter becomes of age and, and has a physician who, you know, women's healthcare provider who's not evidence-based and does things to hurt her, that's horrifying. And so these things fuel me. Uh, and so anyway, just thank you all for, for your messages and for supporting the podcast. Now, how is it that as I, I'm about to get into the Simons publication from June 2023, this little friggin' bird comes right by my window. Now, it's very cute, I, I gotta say, but starts chirping his little tail feathers off. I'm like, seriously, bro? I mean, I, I, I'm just getting to the meat of the podcast, and you fly next to my little balcony and start chirping away. Uh, I love nature, and at the same time, you're killing me. Of all the other times, you couldn't wait to come do your little chirping. Okay, let's continue. So Simons now reports in the journal of, uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine, see this bird's throwing me off, in the New England Journal of Medicine, the results of their RCT that was conducted at 17 hospitals. Now, Steve, listen to this, in Australia, right? So Australia was one of them. It was also in Austria, in India, 
and in Sweden. I love that because nobody can pick on, well, that's Australian medicine or oh, that's just how the, the West does it in the US. Hey man, this has got a lot of different places. It's kind of neat. Um, now there's one protocol, of course, uh, and some treatments were left to typical uh, hospital custom. But I love that. If you can do it in Australia and in India and in Austria and Sweden, that's kind of neat. Women 18 years of age or older with a singleton pregnancy who were anywhere from four weeks to 19 weeks and six days were considered for screening if they had a risk factor for hyperglycemia in pregnancy. Okay, now they use the World Health Organization two hour one step protocol. All right. So that's the 75 gram oral glucose tolerance test. And you're like, well, what's the WHO criteria? It's the same one that everybody uses for the, for the, for the one step protocol, right? So there's no disagreement here. Everybody in general uses a fasting glucose of greater than or equal to 92 as abnormal, a one hour glucose value after the challenge of greater than or equal to 180 as abnormal, and a two hour value of greater than or equal to 153. Okay. So fasting 92. One hour is 180, and then the two hour is 153 or more. That is the World Health Organization recommendation for the one-step 75-gram challenge. Okay, so listen to what they did here, because this is pretty neat. Women who were found to have gestational diabetes early were assigned in a one-to-one ratio to either receive immediate treatment for GDM or deferred or no treatment depending on the repeat 24 to 28 week uh, typical screen. All right, so let's say that again. Hey, you're early. You've got a risk factor for hyperglycemia. Do you want to be uh, checked early? Yes. Great. Okay. If you had gestational diabetes and you're either uh, treated immediately or they'd say, all right, I tell you what, let's just wait to see what happens at 24 and 28 weeks. And if you pass that, then you pass. We'll call it a pass and, and, and you're good. Or if you uh, fail based on that 24 to 20 app, 28 hour, 20, 28 hour, 24 to 28 week test, then we'll treat you then, okay? So they were assigned to either immediate treatment or deferred or no treatment, depending on the results of that second routine glucose tolerance test at 24 to 28 weeks. That's a pretty neat design. Now, obviously, if the women were found to have a, a failure early and were assigned to immediate treatment, then, of course, they did not undergo a repeat screening at 24 to 28 weeks because they're already being treated. Duh. Now, this is kind of cool, okay? I don't know if this would make people comfortable or uncomfortable in the U.S., but it's a great design because clinic and trial staff and the women were unaware of what the glucose tolerance test results actually were. Okay, now obviously the women had an idea because they're like, hey, I'm being treated for something here, but the clinic and trial staff had no idea. That's pretty cool. All right, podcast family, an adverse neonatal outcome, which was a primary first out. All right, podcast family, the adverse neonatal outcomes that were looked at included a composite birth of less than 37 weeks, a birth weight of greater than or equal to 4,500 grams, birth trauma, neonatal respiratory distress that warranted treatment, neonatal phototherapy, stillbirth or neonatal death, or shoulder dystocia. All right, those are big things, and let's see what happened. Well, that occurred in 24.9% of the infants born to women in the early intervention group, and it happened in 30.5% to those in the normal treatment group, which was serving as a control, all right? So you think, wait a minute, hey, those who were screened early and treated had a 24.9% of the primary outcome, and those that had it in the routine time 
between 24 and 28 weeks had it 30.5%. 30.5 is more than 24.9. You're like, hey, that worked, right? Okay, well, it depends on how you look at it by percentage. Absolutely. But when you do the statistics, the adjusted relative risk was 0.82. Now, what does that mean? The relative risk was 0.82. Now, remember that as you go up in relative risk based on uh, based on a solid number above one, then that's an increase based on that amount, right? Based on that magnitude. So a relative risk of two is twice as common. A relative risk of three is three times as common. Fine. When you go in reverse, when you bring it under one, then it's a reduction minus the relative risk, absolute number. In other words, a relative risk of 0.82 means that it was a reduction uh, of around 18%. Does that make sense? A relative risk of 0.5 means it was it happened 50% uh, less like uh, less commonly. Does that make sense? So so remember that it is that the, the reduction is the percent missing from the relative risk amount. So in this case, it was a relative risk of 0.8, which means of course that that's an absolute reduction of about 18%. And yeah, hey, 18% is pretty good. I mean, I'll take that. That's okay. But when you look at the statistical calculation, that's really not all that impressive, all right? It's not even 50%. It's not even 20%. So I, I want to state this in, in the way that the editorial comment from the New England Journal of Medicine actually put it in reviewing this article because it, it says it very well, and I can't say it any better than this, Okay. So all to say it looks impressive, but when you actually take a look, take a look at the data and the statistics, the, the primary outcome reduction in the adverse event was mainly because of a lower percentage of infants with respiratory distress in the early intervention group. So it wasn't shoulder dystocia, it wasn't birth trauma, it's because the biggest category drop is that, hey, babies that were actually... Uh, born to women who had early diagnosis and treatment, yeah, they needed less, you know, uh, positive pressure ventilation or less uh, O2 at birth. Not really major significant issues here, all right? Now, I'll be very, very clear here, based on the, the author's conclusions in, the, in that RCT, they state, quote, no other incidence of serious adverse respiratory event or other morbidity differed between the trial groups. No maternal between group differences were noted with respect to pregnancy induced hypertension and neonatal lean body mass. End quote. So they actually looked at the amount of, of body fat that the babies had between early diagnosis and treatment and then the routine. Because the thought is hey, if they're getting this big influx of sugar for a longer amount of time, then obviously they're going to have more, more fatty deposition uh, in the baby's body. And that's not what they found. Okay. So if you just read the abstract, you're like, oh, hey, look, less percentage of the composite primary outcome. But that's why you have to read the paper, y'all, because when you look at the paper, you're like that that re that drop in relative risk was mainly because of minor respiratory issues in the child. Not that big of a deal. All to say in the accompanying editorial, and here's the clinical pearls, we get it to wrap this up. This editorial was authored by Michael Green, who reviewed the trial and stated it beautifully like this, quote, this well-conducted trial does provide much-needed information regarding the benefits and harms of screening for and treating gestational diabetes in early pregnancy. Here it is, guys. Hold on to your hats. Here it goes. The modest benefits observed, 
coupled with the negative effects of the ego trial. Remember, that's the, the, the ego or the ego. I call it ego because it makes me think of waffles. That's the trial from 2020 that we just discussed. And he goes on to say, quote, calls into question current recommendations for early screening and treatment among high-risk women, end quote. Let me read that again. This well-conducted trial provides much-needed information regarding the benefits and harms of screening for and treating gestational diabetes in early pregnancy. The modest benefits observed, coupled with the negative results of the EGO trial, calls into question current recommendations for early screening and treatment among high-risk women, end quote. All right, Steve, so there you go. How crazy is that? You just reached out to me asking this very question. And of course, we had this discussion on our Facebook Messenger page, and now this new data comes out. So this publication came out on June the 8th, 2023. We're taping this literally just one month after it came out. And it's it's super timely. So Steve, you were onto something there. Listen to those previous links that I sent you. But this just builds to that. So now we've got two sister studies, okay? The EGO trial from May of 20. 2020, and now we have this new publication that just came out June of 2023. One used the two-step protocol, one used the one-step protocol, and regardless of which way you look at it, it didn't seem to make any difference in any meaningful way. So that's why we're here to bring you all this information and to integrate it to make all the puzzle pieces come together. So I hope you found that helpful. Now, just to be clear, it is our practice policy right now in our group. We do screen for early diabetes. We do. But it's interesting. I mean, why are we really doing it if it's not really changing anything? Something for me to discuss and for us to discuss as a faculty, as we teach our residents and our medical students. I don't know. I mean, we have, we've got to bring this up. This is a great journal club idea uh, for our next gathering. All right, podcast family, let's wrap this up. All right, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered early screening for gestational diabetes. Yes, no, or meh. Well, it looks like we've moved away from meh and actually moved to probably no benefit. Listen to our previous episodes on this, and I hope you found this helpful. As always, we thank you for being part of our podcast community. Thank you for your messages. Thank you for your support. And, of course, we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.